All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from New York City on this, the first day of October 2019. I do like to remind you that I'm the author of Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. It's a company that focuses, it's a newsletter that focuses primarily on junior exploration companies and uh, gold gold has gotten hit fairly hard the uh, last uh, couple of days last week or so and uh, a lot of the shares have gone down as well I think it's an excellent time if you believe as I do that we're in a long-term bull market for gold an excellent time to take a look at some of these exciting stories uh, that I talk about every week in my letter I'd like to also encourage you to go to Chen uh, com to sign up for my Friend Chen Lin's letter, What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? Especially if you're interested in biotechs and some things other than gold and silver and the exploration stocks. Chen covers them, too, to, to an extent, but he has really done very, very well with uh, the biotechs, has made a lot of money for his subscribers and uh, in his own account. Uh, also, I'd like to always have you think about uh, Michael Oliver, OliverMSA.com. We'll be talking to Michael in just a moment. I um, want to thank all of you for listening to the show, making it the uh, one of the top shows in the Voice America Business Channel. Always uh, encourage you to send along any comments you might have about this show to questions for Taylor at gmail.com. Questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. And last but not least, we want to thank our sponsors for making the show economically viable. Our sponsors for this week's show are Novo Resources and Great Bear Resources, two of my favorite companies, I might add. Well, uh, I've titled today's show, China or the USA, Alistair McLeod, Dr. Quentin Henning, and Michael Oliver Return. The title of today's show, and much of what I hope to cover, is derived from an essay Alistair wrote on September 5th. In providing an overview of the article, he wrote the following in the opening paragraph, and I quote, China has made some silly errors in its conflict with the U.S., reflecting the arrogance that often afflicts every state actor. But the appearance that China is being backed into a corner over Huawei, trade tariffs, and Hong Kong is misleading. China is progressing her own plans, and they do not require an accommodation with America. With Russia in tow, she is now the chief foreign influence for up to three-quarters of the world's population. So it is American hegemony that's being backed into a corner. One day, this will be reflected in a currency shootout. End of quote. So when we talk to Alistair in the second half of today's show, I want to find out what he thinks uh, the dollar might look like after that shootout takes place. What might trigger a shootout? Uh, and given the outlook uh, that Alistair sees for the dollar, then I want to ask him what advice he might have for us, of course. 
what should we do in planning, not only financially, but perhaps in other ways, uh, if we get to that. Dr. Quentin Henning will join me after our first commercial break. Um, well, you talk about another favorite gold exploration stock that, uh, that I own and uh, that I cover in my newsletter. And I'm not talking about Novo Resources, not today anyway, although that remains a top pick of mine. I expect to have Dr. Henning with me for, up to, uh, for an update on Novo in the near future, I think in a, in a couple of weeks from now, perhaps. Quentin is the leading geologist, however, for Irving Resources, and he sits on the board of directors of that company, Exploring for Gold in Japan. It is a company... Um, this is a company that I that is personally my personally it's my second largest holding, so uh, of course I'm very interested in what Dr. Henning will have to say about Irving Resources. Right now, I'm happy to tell you that Michael Oliver is with me once again to provide his latest thoughts on some of the markets that are most important to us. Thanks for joining me again, Michael. Hi, Jay. Good to be back. Always good to have you. And I missed you last week. We were uh, my wife and I were in Portugal taking care of some business, a little bit of a vacation. Uh, but I always um, I need my Michael Oliver fix every Tuesday, so um, I'm really glad you're with me. On September 29th, you put out a commentary on gold and silver, and actually you did an update again today, which I haven't had the chance to look at um, today. But uh, talk to us a little bit about what you see for gold. I know a lot of nervous Nellies out there that watch the price charts and not your momentum work that uh, get a little bit scared when they see gold going down. And then if they own the shares, sometimes those shares go down percentage-wise, even a lot more than gold. But what are your latest thoughts on gold now? Well, the uh, back in early September, we put out a report that finally said, okay, if you want to take some profits, uh, go ahead and take some, if mm-hmm. you're nervous. Uh, but we suggested make sure it's partial because this bull trend is not over. But at least then, with gold having reached 1550, we saw enough reasons to say, okay, they could have a congestion zone or a pullback. Okay. Mm-hmm. We thought the pullback might find support, and again, we're in the 1500s when we put this out, yeah. for, around 1485. Well, mm-hmm. it happened to drop just above 1485 a week or two later, stopped, rallied. Next week came down to 1484, stopped, rallied. And last week went down to 1485 area again. Well, that's probably too many times coming down to what we thought might be support. Uh, uh-huh. And the floor broke. The floor broke. And it broke yesterday hard. You finally broke below 1485. Uh-huh. And followed a, a little bit more today down into the 1450s and then whipped back up. Uh, uh-huh. and the reason, of course, for the rally is uh, the manufacturing news, which uh, suggests that now the Fed has another metric by which to, you know, justify further rate cuts, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was our main argument recently in that first report you mentioned, is instead of looking at gold's technicals right now, which everybody does, look outside of it, at least three other major markets, dollar index, Bloomberg Commodity Index, and the S&P 500. Those markets have not justified the gold advance we've seen, which is a 34% advance over 13 months, the summer of last year up to the high we made uh, this last month. There was no, if you looked at the Bloomberg Commodity Index, it was going down, no commodity inflation. Looked at the S&P, mm-hmm. it was holding its own. Yes, it had a sharp sell-off in December, but basically got back up to the highs and went comfy. And then when you look at the dollar, it was firm. It had risen 2% from August mm-hmm. of last year to August of this year, September mm-hmm. this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, Two percent, yeah, but that is firm, but not not a dynamic trend. But none mm-hmm. of those markets offered a reason for gold to have done what it did. Right, right. Okay, we argued at that point, September first, 
uh, aside from the possibility of a little correction, that we needed now to see one of these three or all of these three major markets have a trend change. Mm-hmm. We've defined the numbers, what we determined to be an S&P downturn, and we're triggering one of them today, but it's not the most important one. Uh, and we also determined on the dollar index, we've adjusted our numbers. It's a new quarter. We've adjusted them up, and they're not far below the market. And on the Bloomberg Commodity Index, we've got some numbers just above it that would indicate commodities are joining in. So we think it's probably best now for gold watchers to look beyond the gold pit and look beyond the gold miners and look at these three other markets because they're likely to give wind at the back of gold when they turn. Stocks turn down, dollar turns down, Bloomberg commodities turn up. So you've got to watch mm-hmm. those three markets. I think they're mm-hmm. major sources of potential support for gold mm-hmm. and, and a justification for the next upwave in gold. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. What what about uh, how's silver looking relative to gold? I mean, it's, it was uh, looking you know, real strong. Child, just like the gold miners, <laughs> you know, it goes up more than gold, and it goes down more than gold on a percent basis. So it's, yeah. it's like you know a poodle on the leash. It r- runs in front of you <laughs> and then runs behind you. Okay. Uh, we argue based on uh, some long-term spread relationship between silver and gold, and the momentum of the spread specifically, that silver has in fact broken its leash, its decline in performance over the last three years, that the recent surge of the last several months pushed it out enough ahead of gold where it's now saying, I want to tend to outpace gold. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Okay. Um, so w- with respect to the treasuries, I mean, today is a, is a would seem to be a risk-off day. Gold's up a bit, I guess. Uh, the Dow, I'm looking at the Dow, uh, down about 280 points. Looks like a risk-off day. Are the Treasuries uh, up a bit today yep, as a result? The are they benefiting? Three point, uh, about a three-point rally off the low of the day. Again, yep. probably for the same justification that gold had a rally, and that is, okay, we got a big data point today that nobody expected, uh, and it's scary, and it's the kind of thing that the, these uh, academician types at the Fed can say, well, you know, we're number sensitive. Okay, well, you got a number there. <laughs> and uh, it's the kind of thing that could induce them to, you know, more cuts and possibly not even wait for a meeting. Sure. Um, the question is, will the stock market have a tantrum now to force the Fed to respond to that yeah. news? Uh, you know, of course, it, if the stock market goes down, the Fed will respond, uh, mm-hmm. no matter what they but, say. Michael, with just about uh, a couple of minutes left here yet, the dollar, we're going to be talking to Alistair McLeod in the last half of today's show, and a big part of that will have to do with the future of the dollar in view of the growing competition that the buck has with the Chinese, the Chinese yuan, and the Chinese in mm-hmm. general uh, are an ascending power. I think most people would agree to that. Uh, but near term, as Alistair has pointed out in his, uh, in his essay, when we start to have credit problems, when we start to have, that is, when we run into, when the credit cycle is over and we start to run into some real severe uh, financial problems. The dollar usually gains because it is the largest. It is the world's reserve currency. The lot of largest debts out there. A lot of short covering of the, of the dollar, if you will. People have to go out and buy dollars to pay back the margin clerk, so to speak. Um, but what are you seeing in terms of your dollar work right now? Well, the dollar again had a, had a strong rally from early 2018 to August of 2018. In fact, that was the bulk of the rally from. A low at $88 index we're talking about, to 97 so it had a nine-point uh, rally. And then it leveled off and continued to drift higher for the last 13 months. Right now it's about uh, 99 
So it's yeah. about 2% above where it was in August of last year. So it, uh-huh. it's going up at a snail's pace. It's steady. But our argument is if you get down in the uh, much below the mid-97 area, mm-hmm. so a point and a half down, uh, mm-hmm. you're going to trigger downside. Mm-hmm. And so all of this uh, a crawl that we've seen in the dollar, a firm tone but a crawl, uh, will break down. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that's something we're watching because it has significance to other things. Uh, uh, for example, oh. if you own U.S. stocks and you're a foreign investor, you own them in dollars. Yep. Well, so far the dollar's not intimidated you in terms of your, your investment in U.S. stocks. Right. But if uh, the S&P starts to rattle you and the dollar does as well, it makes mm-hmm. the situation, it makes it even worse than simply yeah. the stock market turning down. Yeah. So there's a lot of dominoes here. Yeah, well, that would certainly uh, make for a very rapid exit by foreigners, I would think, if both mm-hmm. of those things hit them, uh, hit them in the kisser, right? So um, it would, all it right, would rattle well, them more than it would a U.S. investor who doesn't yeah, care. Indeed, yeah, indeed, them, indeed, indeed. The U.S. investor, yeah. uh, but the U.S. investor starts seeing his uh, his S and P's tank and his four hundred one k go down real hard. Wow, we've seen that happen before. I mm-hmm. hope it doesn't, but um, history suggests it will. And all the trouble we're getting ourselves into with all of the debt. Debt growing much faster than income, so something's got to give, you'd think so. Anyway, thank you so much for being with us, Michael. And, Thanks, uh, Jay. We'll look to do it again next week. Well, folks, we do have to go to break. Don't go away, though. Dr. Quentin Henning will be with me to talk about, no, not Novo Resources this time, but Irving Resources, another favorite of mine, company exploring for gold in Japan. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Dr. Quentin Henning. Novo Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Pilbara region of Western Australia. Novo has recently partnered with Sumitomo Corporation of Japan to evaluate, advance, and develop the company's Australian gold projects. With over $40 million in cash and $60 million committed from Sumitomo, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me Dr. Quentin Henning. Um, Dr. Henning has been with us a number of times. Normally, we speak to him about Novo Resources, 
which company is exploring and developing a most unusual style of gold mineralization in Western Australia. We, have, we will um, talk to Dr. Henning. We're expecting to, at least in the not-too-distant future, for an update on Novel. But today I have him here uh, to, on this show to discuss another company that I, one of my favorites, my second largest personal holding, I might say, one of my favorites in my newsletter. It's another company that he's intimately involved with in providing a vision of potential wealth creation through gold exploration in Japan. The company uh, that I want to introduce is uh, is uh, named Irving Resources and uh, trades on the uh, Canadian exchange IRV as a symbol. Trades in the U.S. where I purchased it, IRVRF. 48.8 million shares outstanding. $1.84 earlier today when I looked at it anyway, giving it a market cap right around 90 million U.S. dollars. Now, Irving Resources is involved, as I say, in gold exploration in Japan. Akiko Levinson, who is one of uh, who is of Japanese descent uh, and an experienced mining executive, is the president and CEO of the company. I've known Akiko for more than a decade. She is not only a very classy lady, but a mining executive with decades of experience in the industry. But she conducts her business with the highest of ethical standards and. Her, her connections to the Japanese society and to culture is of utmost importance and opening doors for Irving Resources in a country that is not as open as many others when it comes to uh, foreign investors. Akiko has worked very closely with Dr. Henning over a number of years as a director of Irving and the leading geologist for the company's exploration efforts. Uh, Dr. Henning is here to talk about Irving's current exploration work and what shareholders should look forward to. Well, thanks for joining me again, Dr. Henning. Absolutely, Jay. Always a pleasure. It's always a pleasure to hear uh, hear your voice. Uh, normally, we want to ask you about Novo, and I'm really, of course, very anxious about that. I know a lot of our listeners are, too. Uh, but today, we want to ask you about uh, Irving Resources, and we don't generally talk about companies or think about Japan as a country where we're going to invest in gold, but it has had a, a history of gold production. Can you briefly talk about that? And perhaps a little bit and introduce to us uh, Irving's flagship property. I think it's called the Omu Project. Uh, compare geologically um, that with uh, and potentially uh, from a production perspective, does Omu have some potential along the lines of some of the other producers in Japan that that uh, are that have been producing gold for a number of years? Oh, very good question. So I'll kind of give a, a you know Japan Gold 101 lecture okay. here. So- um, gold was discovered in Japan, and, and you know there's at least some documented mining of gold clear back around uh, to the around the eighth century, as mm. I understand. Uh, but more importantly, gold took uh, kind of front and center when the Edo period started in the early 1600s. So, mm. for about the last 400 years, gold has gold production has been an important part of the Japanese economy. Most people don't realize it. Mm-hmm. There are a number of multi-million ounce gold deposits around Japan. Almost all of these deposits are what we call epithermal vein deposits. They were formed in hot spring environments. Uh, during formation, you can produce very high grades in places, especially associated with what we call the boiling horizon within the system. Uh, examples would be the Sado deposit. Sado Island is immediately west of Honshu, produced a uh, on the order of two and a half million ounces, uh, there's the Konami deposit up in uh, in Hokkaido near our Omu project, mm-hmm. around two and a half million ounces. Uh, there's several examples down in, Kush, uh, in Kyushu, which is the southernmost island in Japan. Uh, you know, uh, there's um, the world famous Hishikari deposit. All right, so Hishikari, probably the 
you know, it was late to come in terms of exploration. It was found in the early 1980s, but it has been the uh, flagship gold producer in Japan. And most people don't realize this, but it's the highest grade operating mine in, in the world. Mm. Uh, has been from, you know, several, de- two or three decades now, right? So it's it's produced around, I believe, around 8 million ounces at present. The average head grade started out around 80 grams per ton. Now it's Whoa. around 30 or 40 grams per ton. Uh, it is an amazing deposit. It consists of numerous epithermal veins. Like I said, these are veins of quartz. They're usually banded. They have little thin layers called ginguro, which is, uh, you know, comprises silver-rich minerals as well as uh, particles of gold. And interestingly, uh, almost all of the production in Japan, almost all of these veins have been used as smelter flux. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. Well, they mine the material, the silica-rich vein material. Uh, they put it into smelters when they're smelting base metals like copper, mm-hmm. or zinc, or, you know, these, these kind of metals. And the gold and the silver actually come out as a byproduct, but it, mm. it means very cheap, very simple processing. Uh, that's you know really uh, it, it's highly effective. It's a, like a, and a you know the Japanese are the most resourceful people I'm finding on the planet. They they just do things uh, much differently, but much more effectively than elsewhere in the world. All right. So, uh, and your Omu project does it have some uh, some geological characteristics with those kind of epithermal epithermal vein types that you're talking about? The quartz yes. banded. I'm yeah. sorry, I forgot that part of the question. But yes, Omu is an epithermal vein system. The property is uh, around 200 square kilometers. At present, we have at least three main focus areas. These are very large targets on the property. One is called Omu Center. One is called the Omui Mine. And then one is called Hokuria Mine. Uh, these uh, have at least some historic production, albeit on, on a minor scale. Uh, most were shut down because of the war. Uh, during the Second World War, they shut down gold production at, at a certain point to conserve resources and, more importantly, people. Uh, but these uh, these veins have a lot of potential. We've uh, got places where we see veins literally sticking out of the ground in a very high grade, very characteristic of, of other nearby mines, such as Konami, where, where you know, two and a half million ounces was discovered. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are your, uh, your could you discuss your ex- exploration project, uh, program that's, uh, that's currently underway and what might we expect to, um, to get from that what are the objectives of this program first of all and, and what might investors uh, be looking out for yes uh, you know that's a, a very detailed question so yeah. let, me, let me kind of pick it apart like I said we have three main target areas on the Omu property uh-huh. Omu Center, Omui Mine, and then Hokuria Mine. And these uh, are, are all in, the, in their own right a, a large project. Okay, So we basically have three large projects in one property. Wow. Uh, we've, we've been drilling it at Omu Center. We drilled eight holes earlier this year. Uh, those holes are in the assay lab. We expect those assays to come back here shortly. Uh, the labs are very, very tight for capacity at this point. We've been shipping the samples down to Australia. Unfortunately, in Australia right now, it's the height of the season down there. So, you know, our samples, along with millions of others, are in a very long queue at the laboratories. But uh-huh. we'll have assays for those. Uh, we did see initial high-grade results out of uh, some of the early holes of that program. Uh, but I expect we'll see some more high-grade results in, in samples that are going to come back here shortly. Uh, in the meantime, we are now starting drilling at Omui Mine. So this is a new drill campaign. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
develop targets and, and we're going to implement around 3,000 meters at Omri by the end of this year. Uh, we're also doing things like bulk sampling. At, at Omri Mine, we're actually uh, collecting material as we excavate some trenches. We're collecting vein material and stockpiling that. And we plan to ship that to, to the Kushikino smelter in Japan sometime later this year or perhaps early next year. Mm-hmm. So if I understand your vision here is that um, you are expecting not to uh, construct your own milling facility here, assuming this goes forward into a producing mine, two or three, one or two or three mines potentially, but that you are really looking to, uh, is it the same sort of a flux? Um, yes, this is the model, the business model. Mm-hmm. We, we anticipate, uh, you know, think of it like finding gold and silver rich uh, silica flux for a smelter. Okay, that's uh-huh. our we are trying to identify vein types with low deleterious elements, but high mm-hmm. gold silver concentrations that are ideally suited to ship to a smelter. We don't want to build a mill on site. We don't see a need to. Uh, the smelters are quite hungry across Japan. There's probably on the order of 20 of them, 20 mm-hmm. base metal smelters that, that demand, you know, on the order of tens uh, of thousands of tons of flux each per year. Ah, oh, good. So that means... Potentially lower capex, I guess, than if you had to go about, you know, get permitting and getting a mill built and all that. That's, <laughs> That's the idea. Yes. Yeah. Um, all right. So, can you work through the? Um, I don't know what the weather conditions. I guess you have a severe winter there. Quinting yes. is fairly north. So, do you work through? Will you be working December, January, February that time frame or not this year? We will. So uh, we brought over Canadian crew. This is a drill company uh, based in Winnipeg. They drilled for us at you know, at uh, Spring Pole near Red Lake. So mm-hmm. their experience with winter drilling, Hokkaido is a very cold climate, gets lots of snow in the winter. It's not nearly as cold as Red Lake, but uh, it is cold. And these guys are used to, to drilling, uh, you know, in these conditions. So, yes, we plan on drilling over the winter months. Uh, we'll move from Omri Mine down to Omu Center and resume drilling there in uh, the early part of next year. You're, uh, you're, you're the... Um your company, really, the the number of shares, as I mentioned, only about 50 million shares, 25% of those are owned by management, uh, pretty tightly held. Um, what can you do? Are there any strategic investors in the picture? And I notice also that you just recently uh, have uh, had some discussions with Sumitomo, who you've had a good relationship with, you and Akiko. And, of course, Sumitomo is with you, doing some work with you with Novo over in Australia. But... Uh, could you comment a little bit on who owns your company and its share structure? Because that's always important, uh, obviously. Absolutely. And, and, and how well-funded are you to go forward? Certainly. So uh, the share structure is quite tight, as you know. It's less than 50 million shares out. Uh, Kiko and I both own a substantial amount. Eric Sprott's a big investor. But Newmont joined us as an investor about three or four months ago. Wow. Uh, took part in a placement. They have a right to, to put more money in, uh, you know, at, at various stages, you know, depending on what they see. But we've also brought Sumitomo to the table. Sumitomo is, uh, has become a very uh, good supporter of Novo, as you said, but they're also mm-hmm. quite interested in what we're doing in Japan. They've also got a very long working relationship with Newmont. So, you know, this is effectively a great partnership because oh. if Newmont, for example, wants to enter Japan in a big way, uh, Sumitomo would be a great Japanese mining company host to to work with. 
you know, so it, it's really come together you know, like a perfect storm here. It's just a wonderful s- situation. Uh, we don't see the need for going back to the market anytime soon. We have on the order of 10 or $11 million in the bank. Uh-huh. We have some warrants and options expiring here shortly, which will help top up the Treasury. But we have uh, a lot of runway to work with and very good s- shareholder support. You obviously, um, you know, you're, you're very busy with Novo Resources, and I know that a lot of companies, uh, exploration companies around the world are interested in getting your services whenever they can get their hands on your a bit of your time. But uh, you're not alone there. You have some other good people working with you there in, in, uh, in Japan. Would you care to comment just briefly on who uh, some of the other talented people are there uh, that working for Irving Resources in Japan? Yes. Uh, we've recently hired a gentleman named Takeshi Uemoto as uh, our exploration manager. Takeshi uh, has been working for Goldfields in Australia. Uh, he is is fantastic combination for us because he, uh, you know, obviously he's Japanese national, but he uh, knows the Western style exploration, so that's a, a great benefit to us. Harada, uh, oh, sorry, Mendeko, which is uh, part of Mitsui, does all our contract work, and Harada mm-hmm. uh, is our our lead uh, there. He's he's uh, oversees the project for Mendeko. He's been working with us for several years. We have basically a first-class Japanese team to tackle this, and I'm very grateful for all their help because, uh, you know, working in Japan as a Westerner, especially with the language barrier, can be challenging. I would think so, uh, to say the least. Uh, all right. Well, just then in summing up here, what should we be, those of us who own this stock, and uh, I think a lot of other people ought to start taking a look at it, frankly, but... I don't care if they don't because I think you're going to prevail, you're going to really provide some real value here. I believe I'm very optimistic. But what should we be looking forward to, Quentin? Mina, you'll have some bulk sample assays, some assay drill assays coming out soon, and will there be a continual flow? You mentioned you can work through the winter up there, so might we expect a constant flow once the get, the labs get caught up? Yes, all all of the above, basically. Yes, the labs are the biggest, you know, the stickiest wicket at at this time. But uh, we will have constant drill program and drill results coming over the next year or two. Uh, we, you know, high grade veins are our, our target. We should have samples from surface as well as drilling. Uh, we should be able to demonstrate that this is a very high quality asset in a jurisdiction that, that will make a fantastic mine. All right. Well, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us about uh, about Irving. And, uh, of course, we'll look to talk to you about Novo, uh, I think, in the next what, several weeks or so, you're scheduled. So I hope we can get you back with us. Thanks so much for uh, sharing your time with us, Quentin, and your knowledge and expertise. Anytime. All righty. Well, we do have to go to break now, folks. Don't go away, though. Alistair McLeod is with us to discuss the rising competition for global dominance between the United States and China. So don't go away. This should be really interesting in terms of the future of the dollar and hence um, has some ramifications for some of the other markets that we follow so closely. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Alistair McLeod. A gold rush has begun. Recently, three of the largest gold mining companies announced strategic acquisitions in the Yukon Territories. Ahead of them was a group who had already consolidated the key claims covering the historic Klondike Gold Rush into one company, aptly named Klondike Gold Corp. Led by a team of accomplished geoscientists, the company is steadily advancing exploration to reveal the rich source of all that gold. 
The hunt for the next major discovery is well underway, and Klondike Gold's shareholders are strategically positioned. Stay ahead of the majors and follow KlondikeGoldCorp.com. Great Bear Resources, trading under GBR on the TSX and GTBDF on the OTCQB, is a gold exploration company focused on their wholly owned Dixie project in the prolific Red Lake Mining District of Canada. Having recently made four major gold discoveries, GBR is now fully funded to drill 90,000 meters through to the year 2020 as part of a very active exploration program. Rob McEwen of McEwen Mining, a Red Lake veteran, is a significant shareholder following a recent $5.7 million investment. To stay up to date, visit greatbearresources.ca. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again, Alistair McLeod. Uh, today, I would like to chat with Alistair about an article he recently wrote, I think earlier in September, actually, in one of the first days of September, he wrote an article called China or U.S., uh, and, uh, well, you can all go and read it, uh, which I would suggest you do that and Alistair's other essays that are there. He writes uh, a weekly piece that's put up there every uh, at goldmoney.com. So goldmoney.com and uh, for Alistair McLeod's insights, which are very valuable, which is one of the reasons he's one of the most frequent guests on this show. Thanks for joining me again, Alistair. That's fair. So, it's really good to have you, Alistair. Um, are you hearing me okay? I, I can hear you fine, yes. Okay, good. Um, you, you are very critical of tariffs, and as are most economists, I think of virtually every stripe. And you make the statement that, and I quote, tariffs arise out of political ignorance of the economics of trade imbalances, end of quote. And I agree with you, but it is also true that since about the time that uh, Richard Nixon detached gold from the dollar, America has run chronic and deepening trade deficits that, uh, that have served to enrich the, I would, argue, I would argue at least, that's my view, to enrich the elite political, academic, financial classes in America at the expense of the middle class working people, but in any event, they're indisputable that we've had a chronic trade deficit. So if tariffs aren't the answer, what what is the answer uh, to this well, chronic trade problem that we have? Well, I, um, you're absolutely right about um, uh, unfettered uh, monetary inflation. And the answer is quite simple. Stop monetary inflation. Yeah. Because what happens is if you um, push extra money into the economy, um, which is not actually... Um, uh, if you like, uh, spent on production. And I'm Mm -hmm. talking about the existing stock. So you're talking about extra money coming into the economy, either in the form of base money or in credit. Mm -hmm. Then unless the savers actually turn around and save that money, 
you're going to get a trade deficit. It's actually as simple as that. Mm-hmm. And so the trade deficit is simply the consequence of monetary inflation, inflation which basically allows the government to spend more than it raises in taxes. Mm-hmm. And so the answer is quite simple. Just stop doing it, and then you won't have a, um, a, a trade deficit problem. Uh, it, in the process, as I, as I mentioned, it also seems to have created uh, reallocation of income from different classes. Do you agree with that? Uh, yes, I, I do entirely. I mean, the whole point about um, monetary inflation is that it transfers wealth mm-hmm. from ordinary people uh, mm-hmm. to uh, the government and the banks. And mm-hmm. uh, it does it in such a way that very, very few of them actually understand what's happening. And that's the beauty of it, because from the government's <laughs> point of view, because if yeah. you, you know, if, if you raise taxes, everybody knows <laughs> that yeah. you raise taxes. This yeah. way you print some money is complete. You, you can't tell the difference between existing money and new money that's come in. It's not as right. if they've got serial numbers or anything. And so therefore, um, you know, you can do it and get away with it of course mm-hmm. at some stage you find that uh, uh, prices start rising because you, you you know you're creating an imbalance in the economy uh, with all this extra money it lowers the purchasing power of the of of not only the existing money but the new money as well as it as it sort of filters through the system robbing people of the value of their wages and their savings and mm-hmm. um, that is actually what it's all about yeah yeah redistribution to those that control the the monetary system, essentially, and that's the government and the banks, as you say, would argue that there are uh, there are government-sponsored businesses uh, such as the military-industrial complex. That, uh, they those those fellows like it quite a bit too. But anyway, I don't want to get off the track here because uh, you mentioned um, in your article that China has made some silly errors regarding its relationship with the U.S. One was that they should not have retaliated against Trump's tariffs. Why? Would China have been better off not to have retaliated against uh, Trump? It seems like a tit for tat is sort of human nature, isn't it? human nature and it's 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 politically um, you know <laughs> it's almost impossible to resist the temptation yeah. but the fact is that if you impose tariffs on imported goods what you're doing is you're taxing your people um, and it's as simple as that in fact you see this with President Trump claiming you know I Mr. Tariff Man you know we're raising revenue through tariffs yeah <laughs> actually what you're doing is you're, you're you know He's not taxing the Chinese, he's taxing the American people. Mm-hmm. And the same goes for China the other way. Uh, by far the best thing they could have done is just actually ignore the tariff. Um, I, you know, difficult emotionally and all the rest of it, but purely from the point of view of ensuring that the Chinese economy um, produces the best outcome for its people, they should ignore the tariffs. You cannot do anything about it, someone else's tariffs imposed on your goods. Um, you know, just just forget it. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, that's their affair, um, yeah. unfortunately. Um, but so this this was a big mistake by China. If they actually understood what it was about, to the um, you know. Uh, to the, and the importance, if you like, of uh, being able to buy from the cheapest source, the best source, whatever you know, whatever goods you need, that is of so much benefit to the Chinese economy. So they've, in effect, um, they've taken a huge step backwards by uh, following President Trump with these tariffs. Mm-hmm. Well, if that was a big mistake, I gather in reading your essay that a bigger one was uh, made by China in allowing tensions in Hong Kong to accelerate. Can you explain why that was so bad for China? 
Yes. Um, the, the, the point about Hong Kong is that um, Hong Kong is the funnel through which all outside investment into China uh, from the West goes. Uh, now, this is very important because China has a massive program of infra infrastructure spending and general economic improvement, um, uh, and that does need foreign portfolio flows. And it was by setting up something called Shanghai Connect, uh -huh. which uh, basically goes through Hong Kong. And what it means is that an international portfolio manager can invest in China without having to go through exchange controls. And he can take his money out of China through exactly the same mechanism with no let or hindrance whatsoever. So it's a completely um, uh, sort of free investment channel, as it were. So mm -hmm. so that, that is very important. Now, as far as America is concerned, she sees uh, um, she has an enormous dependency, if you like, on uh, foreign investment in U.S. treasuries in particular mm -hmm. sure. for, for the government to continue to spend beyond its means without um, uh, tapping, if you like, the non-existing savings of its people. Uh, so it needs those foreign flows. It needs them more than China needs them as far as America is concerned. So what does she do? She tries to destabilize Hong Kong. This, at least anyway, is the way the Chinese are looking at it. I mean, mm -hmm. I have no evidence, direct evidence that this is the case. Mm -hmm. um, but this is the way the Chinese look at it. So, um, uh, and we saw uh, long before these, the current round of riots started, that in America, they started clearing the decks on the legislative front, in case the Chinese um, went ahead with this extradition law, which was the earliest stage of being mooted. And um, having having done that, the Chinese still went ahead with it, which I think was a huge mistake. I mean, mm -hmm. for goodness sake, the Chinese can can get anyone they want out of Hong Kong by yeah. doing it on the quiet. I mean, why produce a law which gives America the excuse to march mm -hmm. in? you know, stir up the agitation and put off every international investor for from investing through Shanghai Connect. Right. And uh, if you want a further confirmation of this, of course, there was this story last week that um, the American administration might um, force Chinese uh, companies to delist from American stock exchanges. Uh, mm -hmm. And there were various other um, uh, stories about uh, control of uh, Chinese capital flows in America and all the rest of it. You know, all... It's, it's quite obvious that um, the American administration basically want the money mm -hmm. either that China has or China is making yeah. uh, or China hopes to attract. That, yeah. that is why the Hong Kong thing was a, was the most stupid mistake. All right. So they made some stupid mistakes. But uh, I gather your view is that China is an ascending power. It's going to uh, to rise no matter what happens. Uh, you comment on the bigger picture and say that China and Russia are positioned to take control of the global energy markets. Can you explain why that is happening and, and what it might mean for the future of the dollar, which has depended, of course, uh, known as the petrodollar, of course. And so could you comment on that and, and, and perhaps what that might mean for the petrodollar? Yes, of course. Um, what I mean by that, well, we, Russia is already the largest exporter of energy in, in the world. Now, um, Russia's energy includes uh, natural gas as well as oil. Uh, she is second in oil to Saudi Arabia. 
basically what has happened is that um, the Middle Eastern political situation has uh, evolved in such a way that Iran has been forced into um, uh, the hands of uh, Russia mm-hmm. um, by, by dollar sanction, sanctions against her using the dollar um, and uh, also into the hands of China. So you've got, if you like, three parties in Asia con- now uh, effectively uh, in control of the majority of the world's energy supplies. You've got Russia, Iran, and China, who does produce some, but is, 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 is a huge importer. So from China's point of view, she has secured as much energy as she needs. Now, the situation is spreading from there because uh, you will be aware that the Houthis um, uh, have uh, uh, increased their uh, strike uh, ability. I mean, uh-huh. I think it was last weekend um, on, on a border town, a town which is just in Saudi Arabia, they apparently Apparently, routed um, three regiments of um, uh, Saudi troops, you know, with all their wonderful equipment and all the rest of it. I mean, it seems that the Saudis actually couldn't organize light refreshment to a um, captive audience when it comes to military action. Mm hmm. They've got all the kit, but they've got absolutely no ability whatsoever. The Houthis absolutely routed them. I mean, this is extraordinary. Not only that, but the story um, uh, a few weeks ago was it wasn't Iran which sent in the missiles uh, to um, uh, uh, um, destroy or, or incapacitate the, the uh, refining capacity of Saudi Arabia. It was the Houthis. Now, the Houthis do have the technology, but nobody wants to admit that this is the case. Oh. Now, think, think. Iran, Houthis, Hezbollah. Now, uh-huh. suddenly, suddenly you have got this sort of new force gathering. And I think the way it is working is it's not trying to knock out uh, Israel. I think they're moving towards knocking out Saudi Arabia. So there are very big developments going on in that part of the world, world which need very close watching. And we must uh, uh, be very careful not to get take the line from uh, uh, Western governments who have an interest, if you like, in ensuring that the Saudis um, uh, are, are not the problem and that Iran is the problem and the Houthis are just a sideshow. Yeah. That is yeah. not the case. That is not uh, the case. Very interesting. So, so Saudi Arabia, of course, uh, you know, I mean, Americans are, are wondering why we've been so close to Saudi Arabia after they drove airplanes into our buildings and attacked the country, and then of course you had this uh, journalist that was recently um, done away with by the Saudis. Um, so, do you think? And, and and I think in your article you mentioned something about Saudi Arabia being drawn more closely to China. She sees China as her, as more of her future than the U.S. It seems to me that the this, it, we could be looking at some real tectonic shifts here in the global uh, in the global geopolitical structure. Um, that could have some ramifications then, I guess, on currencies and and the like, right? Yes, I think that's true. Uh, I think I'm right in saying Saudi Arabia doesn't supply any oil to America whatsoever. Uh-huh. Her major customer, her major customers are in Asia, and I think the objective of the end game that's uh, being played, if you like, between China, Russia, 
And uh, Iran are not quite so part of this particular aspect of the end game. But what they want to do, I think, is to capture, if I can use that in inverted commas, uh, politically capture, if you like, Saudi Arabia from the Americans. And, and then they would very, very definitely uh, have uh, total control, if you like, of, of um, uh, the majority of the world's oil supplies. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is, this is um, uh, building Asia. It's Fortress Asia, if you like. That is the idea. And uh, Asia on its own uh, with Eastern Europe, um, you know, we're going back to uh, Mackinder's Heartland theory. Um, It is quite clear that this becomes a major force. We've got something like three quarters of the world's population Mm -hmm. involved when you also include sub-Saharan Africa, which is supplying um, uh, the commodities and and, uh, and raw materials for all this. Um, three quarters of the world's population. Suddenly, we can see that this is coming under China's control, mm-hmm. admittedly with her partners. And here is America uh, trying to wage um, uh, 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 some sort of war against China, which is a mixture of tariffs, uh, tr- now beginning to try and choke off capital flows. Um, and, uh, you, you know, I mean, she's already, I think, um, really on the fringes of this and being excluded. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we then come down to uh, which currency is the more stable in a crisis? Mm-hmm. And uh, that, I guess, might be your next question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would think that's that's uh, on everybody's mind. Uh, I mean, if, if, um, if the U.S. doesn't control the oil market anymore and it's controlled by three quarters uh, by, by China and Russia... Uh, and three quarters of the world's population is is now involved in that market, then the U.S. does get frozen out. What does that do to the dollar? Because it's my idea, my view. I think everybody that's thought about this understands that Kissinger went off to Saudi Arabia and arranged to have the the dollar, uh, the, all the oil uh, from OPEC priced in dollars, which put a bid under the dollar when there was no uh, longer any gold to justify owning the dollar. So this uh, whole thing could come unraveled. Uh, I guess, how much time is it going to take, though? That's well, the uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think the timing depends on when the next credit crisis occurs. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, because when a credit crisis occurs, we sit and actually think, who's actually got the debts? Yeah. Now, we do know that there is a huge amount of debt in China, but it's not in the government. The government debt to GDP is around about 51 52%. Government debt to GDP in America is over 100%. So you can see that on that metric, uh, the American uh, the American dollar uh, is not in the stronger position. Uh, the other thing is that the Chinese uh, um, uh, government controls virtually all the banking system. All the banks are basically state owned. There are a few private banks on the fringes, but they're a very small part of the whole thing. So this means that uh, Chinese banks are not going to go past because mm-hmm. the government basically stands behind them already. Mm-hmm. Um, in America, you could have a situation where if we get another credit crisis, the government ends up owning a few banks. But, you know, that's not that's not the best way to um, start owning banks. Um, and uh, not only that, but if you start doing it, and you've got to put out huge, huge amounts of, of capital and you're already in the hole to 105 percent of GDP as a government, mm-hmm. you've got to big problem in a crisis so i would um now this is very unfashionable view i have to say and i was listening to um steve bannon being interviewed by kyle bass the other day Uh and they've got it they've got this totally the other way around 
I think they're wrong. The, the, the answer to this, quite simply, is that if they go all out financial war against China, it's the dollar that will collapse, not the yuan. Yeah. Well, they don't see it that way. It's very hard for Americans to see that, Alistair. We have had uh, you know dollar hegemony since, I don't know, I guess uh, coming out of World War II, and then we went off the gold standard and then converted to a petro standard, a petrodollar standard. Um, and so I guess it's really hard for Americans to see this, but you mentioned in your article that you know the Chinese are savers, the Americans are not, and a lot of the debt, as you just mentioned, is owed to these corporations, but the banks that have lent the money are government-sponsored and they're not going to go bust. But you make a point in your article that it's very important to note, and it's very important in terms of the financial structure and stability, that the Chinese do not have that level of consumer debt that we have. Um, could you talk a little bit about the debt? We just have about four minutes, five minutes left maybe. Talk a little bit about the importance of that debt, the difference in the structure between, uh, even though they have 300% of GDP, the Chinese do, that it's, it's not nearly as dangerous as it appears to most Americans. I guess most Americans think that China is going to go down and we'll be just fine and the dollar will be eternally the world's reserve currency, but obviously that's not something Absolutely. that history is going to yeah. The, the quickest way to describe this is to think in terms of savers. Um, if you have a, a very high proportion of saving in your economy, then the savers will place far greater trust in the currency than people in an economy where those savers don't exist. And oh. that, I think, is the fundamental truth behind, um, uh, if you like, in the gunfight at OK Corral, that is the fundamental truth for the backing of the yuan which the dollar does not have you know with just a couple of minutes left the last time we talked to you you talked about the dangers of the world's reserve currency having negative interest rates is that a trigger you think that might actually send the dollar reeling to the downside that is the, you, you, you mentioned that the, the dangers of the, and the differences of world's reserve currency because all the commodities are priced in dollars and, uh, you know, if the dollar goes negative, the time preference th- issue that you brought up will become very important and people will likely dump the dollar and buy commodities and stuff. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, and the, the dollar, dollar interest rates needn't necessarily go negative. If they go to the zero bound and there yeah. is a belief that the next stage is for them to go negative, mm-hmm. that will be enough to destroy the dollar, in my view. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I say it's hard for it's hard for people. I mean, I'm 72 years old. I've lived in this country. I'm old enough to remember when we still had a quasi gold standard, Alistair. I don't suppose you're anywhere near that age, but I remember it very well. I, I'm August with you. 15th, August 15, 1971. I remember reading the New York Times, going into Manhattan from New Jersey, and reading about how this was a temporary thing. It wasn't going to last long. Nixon told us, but here we are, years, decades later, and. And a lot of people have gotten very rich by getting rid of the, an honest monetary system. And uh, But it's on shaky grounds now, I believe. And, you know, the one bridge, one road. I mean, China's plowing ahead, aren't they? And they're, they're and no matter what happens, I mean, this Hong Kong thing, it seems to me, is likely to be a small, a small incident in the bigger picture where the Chinese are certainly using their, their earnings from ex, net exports to buy up the world's goods, uh, to buy up... Um, uh, producing resources, mines and oil and that sort of thing, right? Absolutely. And I think the plan, the China's plan basically is to become more self-sufficient, if you like, in terms of, uh, well, virtually everything. They're going to become more 
consumer driven, which means that those savings will diminish. But the Chinese savings habit is very strong, like it is in Japan. And I mean, Japan has survived because it's of its savers, really. Mm-hmm. Um, against negative interest rates and everything else. So I think the yuan has got enough of those characteristics probably to see it through the changes that we're likely to have in the next two or three years. Okay, uh, okay. with uh, one minute left, what does this, uh, the gold hoarding by China, the massive amounts of gold, does that come into the picture here somewhere when the dollar goes bust? I believe it does. Uh, I think it's a, it, it's effectively a, back, a backstop. Now, if the dollar goes bust, then the whole currency system is going to be undermined, threatened, um, and possibly go down the drain with it. It is very important for uh, Asia to have um, a gold backing, if you like, to provide an insulation against that Western phenomenon, the collapse of fiat currencies. And I think it is that uh, that has driven the Chinese to accumulate over the years significant uh, undeclared amounts of bullion. And I believe that that could be in excess of 20,000 tons. This is the state. I'm not talking about the people. They've got a further 17,000 tons, roughly. And this is an estimate. Uh, so, um, uh, yeah, gold, gold and oil and rare earths are the commodities which China dominates and controls. Okay, we'll have to leave a go at that. Thank you so much for being with us again, Alistair. Always a pleasure. Uh, that's it for this week, folks. Next week, Bob Moriarty is my guest. Uh, he's a three-two-one gold. Chris Taylor of Great Bear, and also uh, with a little luck, we'll have Michael Oliver back. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 